Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to advance in leadership, then this podcast is for you. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker, and Monique Marquez, senior corporate leader, ex-Googler, and diversity expert. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Nikki Barua, your host for today's episode. When an opportunity presents itself, do you feel a spark of excitement at first and then begin to realize the challenges that may come with it? Suddenly, self-doubt creeps in and stops you from taking action. Does that sound familiar? I've been there too, and in those moments of hesitation, I found inspiration in this quote by Susie Cassum: Doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. Our guest today is Michelle Freimeyer, CEO of CWT, who shares how taking on challenges and leaning into those tough assignments early in a career set the stage for her to advance. She has been guided by the motto, it's not that we fall down, it's that we get back up. Michelle is a senior executive with 30 years of experience in driving growth and transformation at both public and private companies worldwide. Michelle's career reflects a demonstrated track record as a catalyst to successful execution of transformation, large-scale growth, both organic and through mergers and acquisitions, the transition from private to public company through an IPO, and as a leader of successful transformation initiatives. Most notably, her experience in finance and strategy and serving as a key strategic partner to boards and executive teams, combined with strong leadership and team building skills, has prepared organizations to make a global impact. In this episode, Michelle shares her story of rising to the top, how the best way to check all the boxes for a role is to accept the opportunity and learn in the role, and how success and scaling is directly correlated to an amazing team and great culture. Visit I'mBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. We're so thrilled to have you here. Great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a huge delight for our audience to get to know you because you're amongst the tiny percentage of women that have made it to the very top uh, as a CEO, as a public company board director. So I want to dive right in and um, ask you, like, what do you believe really helped you get to the top? You know, one of the things that happened to me relatively early on in my career that I think was really helpful and and it was an important lesson to me is I got asked to take on a, a tough assignment, one that really wasn't my plan for my next move. It was actually a bit out of my comfort zone, but the CFO of the company I worked for at the time, Continental Airlines, asked me to take on a project. And because it ended up being really successful, I then got exposure to another project. And then Mm -hmm. I got recruited to another company, Delta Airlines, where I worked on, again, a difficult project and ultimately ended up as an officer of the company at a Fortune 500 company when I was 35 years old. But I I really attribute that to the experiences and the willingness to take on the toughest assignments. And Mm -hmm. one of the pieces of advice I always give younger people who ask about their careers, lean into that tough assignment, Mm. take those things that nobody else wants to do. There's always a chance that you fail, but that chance is real everywhere in in Mm -hmm. life. And, 
but you might succeed and it might lead to something really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that was one thing that was really helpful for me. That's great advice. Uh, really taking on those tough, challenging assignments that help you prove yourself because if things go well, it sets you apart. But there's also fear in what you uh, describe, which is that fear of failing if you take on that tough assignment. Um, how does one get past that kind of fear, especially when the exposure and visibility is, is huge? You know, I am a big, I'm a big fan of the, it's not that we fall down, it's that we get back up kind of philosophy. Yeah. We're all going to fail at something. There have been jobs that I failed at. There have been relationships that I'm sure I've failed at. And I think just not being afraid of letting your fear define you, Mm. willing to say that as long as I give, do my best, I've succeeded. Um, Listen to your heart, listen to your gut. Don't be afraid to try something new and different. Um, I also think that it can be as simple as realizing that there's nothing that can happen in a job that's going to change your value as a person. Hmm. Who you are, the people that love you and the people that you love, that's a constant that isn't defined by your title or promotion or getting let go from an employer. And I think when you realize what really matters, it gives you this sense of freedom that there's really nothing that a company can do to you that's going to really permanently harm you. Mm. I mean, we all see employment as vital, having a job, taking care of our family is important. Mm -hmm. But I think don't let yourself be backed into a corner of fear, you know, try, be bold, try new things. I think when you have view that what really matters is the relationships you have, the people you care about, your own character. Mm-hmm. When you control those things, the other things will they'll they'll come along and they'll come where they're supposed to come. That is uh, really powerful and liberating because when you think that way, uh, it's really the ability to keep moving forward instead of worrying about all the things that could hold you back. So um, let's go back to the very beginning when you were just embarking on your career. How did you gain clarity at that stage? Or did you have clarity about what you wanted to do in your career? Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, I would tell you I didn't have clarity at all. In fact, a year before I embarked on getting my master's, my MBA at University of Texas, I wasn't even sure I was going to go to graduate school. I I thought I was going to go to medical school. I had thought, you know, for a long time that I wanted to be a doctor and I prepared and And then the more I got to know about it, I thought, I'm not sure this is what I want to do. I'm not sure it's the life that I want for myself. And I was really questioning. And I only went to business, graduate business school because my advisor suggested that I consider it. And when I was talking to him about what should I do, I don't know what I want. And so I tried it. I thought to myself, if I don't like it, I can always go back to medical school, Mm -hmm. but I liked it. And so then then it led to getting that first job. And, you know, I could have gone into banking or consulting or business, but business seemed like it resonated for me. So I tried it and I, but I always had the idea of, well, if I don't like this, if it doesn't work out. I can do something else. Yeah. I think only once I was probably in, you know, 
at a director level in a financial career, did I begin to say, hey, I really like this. I really enjoy what I do. I like the people I do it with. I want to do it at a place where I can make a difference. And I think then I had clarity of where I wanted to go. But even even three years ago, when I joined CWT, it wasn't that I joined thinking my next goal is to be the CEO of the company. I grew into that objective as I saw, you know, first I ran finance and then I took on strategy and I had had a history of doing other things outside of finance and my remit broadened and I realized I wanted to take that step, that I wanted to lead in a broader way and it became more important to me, but I didn't even start that job thinking that's where it would lead. In fact, it's a, you know, it's an adventure that's still unfolding. I think for me, what I would tell people is don't be afraid to seize an opportunity. Mm. Sometimes things come to you when you're least expecting them, a, a call from a friend, an old friend, a 20 year old friend led to me working at CWT and working with him again and working with the team that we had led me to being the CEO but I would have never thought I wasn't looking for a job when that happened. I was working at a private equity portfolio company and running M&A and finance and HR and enjoyed what I was doing. And, and we were busy thinking about a, a, a sale for the business and exit, but you know, they called me and the time was right and it felt right in my gut. And, and I will say that is one thing that has really helped me is to learn to listen to my heart or mm-hmm. to my gut. Um, I've learned that the voice in the back of my head, that gut feeling is really just my way of my brain resolving all the complexity down to what is probably the right decision. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I'm not data driven. I'm a huge proponent of data driven decision making. And I love having data, but I think sometimes you just have to be still and listen to your heart and know that if something resonates for you, then you should go for it. That is fascinating coming from you because um, as someone whose career has been formed in very strategic analytical fields, um, you know, to hear you say, listen to your gut um, is really powerful. Um, how, how does someone reconcile that if um, there's a disconnect between what the facts and the data rationally tell someone to do versus the emotions, which sometimes can even be driven by fear, not necessarily just the opportunity. How does someone reconcile that? Well, you know what? It happens all the time. You know, you're all the time, especially in a really quantitative field or a highly analytical role like I have had, you all the time get data and its initial view doesn't resonate with your your gut instinct, like something about this doesn't seem right. And I think for me, what has always helped me is I have this insatiable curiosity to continue to peel back the layers until it all makes sense. And so keep kind of digging until like there's more information that connects the dots because the gut is probably saying something about what's not right. I think that's right. And and you look, there there are always times where maybe your initial gut instinct isn't right. Mm-hmm. And the data will prove that out or the experts that you work with, the people around you, they'll have valuable facts. So number one, you have to listen to other people, right? It really does take a village to make a great decision in a business that's complicated. 
like ours, where we operate in 45 countries, it, it takes a village of experts to, to really know what do we do in this part of the world. I think you also have to be willing to connect the dots. And that, for me, that's the part of my job that I love. So my normal insatiable intellectual curiosity helps me because I'm always saying, say more. I don't understand. Explain that to me again. How does what you said here relate to what you said here? And over time, I think you begin to be able to kind of reconcile all the data, all the inputs, and then you'll get comfortable with the right decision. I have rarely made a decision that I felt like the data said one thing and it was in a huge huge disagreement with my gut, normally they begin to kind of align Mm. as you ask questions and probe and dig deeper. That's a terrific framework to keep in mind of, you know, leveraging your gut as a compass to say, perhaps there's a need for more information. Maybe there's more you need to learn, um, but using the data to help you get more clarity and eventually reconciling that to have the confidence that you're making the right decision. So speaking of your career path and the decisions you made to go from, you know, looking at a career um, as a doctor to going down um, business and finance, um, one of the things we often hear from a lot of the women that uh, are part of the Beyond Barriers Accelerator that, you know, as they're looking to their future, they're often looking for total certainty about that future North Star way out in the future. Mm-hmm. And based on what you've described, you may have a perspective, but sometimes you need to let things unfold. What guidance would you give to someone who's in that position who's saying, you know, I don't really have clarity on the next 20 years. And so I'm feeling lost in moving forward and taking action today. Mm-hmm. How do they still know that they're heading the right direction? There's two things that I always try to counsel people, particularly, I think, when you do have a, a potential to be 20 or 30 more years in your career. The first is you really can't have an effective plan that goes much beyond about half the time that you've worked. So if you've only worked for five years, having a 20 year plan is candidly pretty unrealistic. Think about the next two and a half to three years. Mm -hmm. If you've worked for 10 years, think about the next five years, Mm. right? Always let your planning horizon be complementary to the amount of experience that you have. I've often worked with, you know, really bright, um, incredibly ambitious and high potential younger executives. So, you know, maybe they're in their late thirties, early forties. And I'll say, someone will say, I just don't know that they're getting it. And I'll say, listen, you're maybe the person you're talking to is in their fifties. And I said, think how much you've learned in the last 10 years. Mm. They haven't had those 10 years yet. How do we prepare them with experiences? Because experience really does beget wisdom and being in different experiences gives you more wisdom. And so the other thing I tell people is do not think of your career is this proverbial ladder. Mm. I, I often say, think of it like a parking garage and you're searching for that perfect parking place. Yeah. You up a floor, you wander around on that floor. Maybe you don't find what you're looking for. Maybe you go back down a floor, maybe Maybe you go to the west side of the parking garage. You're ultimately working your way up, but you don't have to think about it as this singular 
line. It can be a wavy line. It can be a place where you pause in maybe marketing and spend time and decide to yourself, you know, I really want to move to strategy. And then you spend time in strategy and maybe that takes you to finance and maybe finance takes you to corporate development. I mean, you do have to think about that. What you're building is a a set of skills, Hmm. a set of experiences to rely on. And the more breadth of experiences you give yourself, the more willing you are to try new things and not necessarily just stick with one thing, the more you'll bring to decisions as an executive, the more perspectives you'll be able to share. I've worked at you know, eight or nine different companies. And so when I'm faced with a situation at our company, I have way we did things at eight or nine different places to draw on. Mm. And look at how did we do it at the Fortune 500 airlines that I've worked for? How did we do it at a global hotel company? How did we do it at a small 200 person portfolio company? And all of those experiences inform the way you think about things. And so you should, I think people should think about their career the same way. I love the parking garage uh, analogy. That's uh, fascinating when you think about uh, really developing those skills and finding those perfect spots mm-hmm. along the way instead of just a straight line up. Um, how do you connect all of the skills and competencies that you developed through these varied experiences to really get clear about one superpower and the thing that sets you apart and that you become known for. What is yours and how did you sort of discover that? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, You know, I guess if I had to think about what is my superpower, it probably is my willingness to go really deep in a subject, to dig in, to do the hard work, to learn and understand, but at the same time, be able to raise myself up, look across things holistically and think what fits with the big picture. And and I think that ability to move from the minute detail to the macro, to the strategic, and to be comfortable moving between the two, I think that has been the thing that has probably helped me most. Mm-hmm. Because it allowed me to bring, especially, you know, if you think about what's so important about being a great CFO, mm-hmm. which I was be- for many years before this, you need to be able to give your team advice. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to crystallize things for them and say, listen, I've listened to what everybody said. And I think this boils down to point A, point B, and point C. You know, when I think about those three things, Here's what it feels to me like the right direction is. So that of willingness to take in data at all levels, to assimilate it, and then to really turn things into something simpler, something mm-hmm. you can put your hands around. I think that requires that movement between the strategic and the detailed. And I, I think that has probably been the thing that has helped me the most. Mm-hmm. Now, um, when it comes to... Um, leaping into new roles. And you've sort of not only had uh, major leaps, but also across different types of companies and different scales of companies. Did you ever feel any hesitation to say, am I really ready for the role? You know, am I, (laughs) can I do this well? Do I need to learn more, get more experience before I, you know, put my hand up for that? 
Well, I would tell you, I probably felt that in every job. And, you know, you read all the time about women, especially who they want to, they look at a job description and they want to meet every criteria before they apply. And the women simply don't apply for roles. Whereas, you know, maybe their male counterparts meet seven out of the 10 and are like, I got most of those, right? I always tell people for anything in life and the most recent time I was saying it was to someone who's this incredibly brilliant younger woman I know who works at one of these amazing strategy consulting firms. And she's like, I look at her and think, I want to be her when I grow up, right? And she's like, I just don't know if I can handle being a mom and having a career. I said, you're never going to be ready. Yeah. There's, you're never ready. You're never ready for that next role because the only way you're really ready is doing it. Mm. And you have to be willing to say, I'm not perfect. I will make mistakes. Um, and, and I will learn from my mistakes. And when you're willing to accept your own imperfections, you do become so much more willing to accept it in others and to recognize no one's perfect. We, we as an organization and as people, as a team, even the executive team that works with me who are by far the most amazing group of professionals I've ever worked with. They're not perfect. And we all make mistakes. It's, do we learn from them? What can we do about them? You know, I, I even say to my, my children who are young in their career, just try to make new mistakes. Mm. Just don't keep making the same mistakes. And I think recognizing that you're never fully ready for anything Mm -hmm. that every time you're testing yourself, that you're learning what that is ultimately is living with a growth mindset. Mm. If you're always growing, then you're never done. And if you're never done, then you're never ready. Right. And so I, I think I just tell people, don't let that fear hold you back to go for what you want to do. Um, and I also try to tell people, look, every one of us have opportunities to be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's certainly true for me. But I do think I got some great advice early on in my career from a coach who said, it's not about getting rid of the things that aren't perfect about you. It's about leveraging the things that are really strong mm-hmm. and softening the things that maybe are less strong. So lean on your strengths, lean into your strengths, leverage your strengths. For me, if it's my willingness to dig into things, to assimilate data, to connect the dots, I can lean into that. You know, I have to then think about how do I make sure I bring people along with me, right? How do I ask probing questions? And I've gotten a lot better than that. But if I waited to be good at that, I'd still be in like the third job in my career and I wouldn't have gone anywhere. Right. Yeah. So Michelle, you said everyone makes mistakes, no matter, you know, how talented, experienced and um, how much potential they have. But the impact of that mistake gets exponentially greater, depending on the seniority of the role and the scope and scale of what you own. Given the scale of what you run and the kind of the significant budget and risk implications of what you're faced on a daily basis, what has helped you manage at that scale? And 
what would help in this answer is really, you know, almost a window into what your world looks like as you're juggling so many different things, so many different offices, people around the world, um, uh, an industry that frankly, right now over the past year has been severely impacted. Outside looking in for someone like you, how do we get a window into you navigating through all of that risk and uncertainty? You know, I think the thing, it, it has been tremendously uncertain and it remains uncertain, right? We're 16 months into the most challenging time that I think the travel industry has ever had. And our business, which is a business travel oriented business, is certainly not recovering at the pace that others are. That said, at every turn, I think there have been two things. One, right? What, what do we think is the right thing to do, but are we making decisions in partnership? So for me, there was always partners to talk to. Even if I ultimately, because of the role I had as a CFO, had to be the one to say, this is where we draw the line. We can't go past here. I had peers that I worked with who were trusted confidence and I would go to them and talk to them. Ultimately, sometimes unpopular decisions were mine and mine alone, and I had to make them. But I did feel like I always had a community of people to bounce ideas off of and talk to. And so I would say that one window is into the amount of collaborative decision making that goes into really running a big, complex global enterprise. Mm. You are always getting feedback and input on issues. Now, Sometimes there's disagreement in the room and it is sometimes my job to say, time out. I hear everything you have to say. I think we've heard enough. This is the decision. And when you have to do that, it's your job to own that and to be willing to take that role. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, you're really trying to move a group of people toward a collective decision, mm -hmm. one that everyone feels good and gets behind and so I think one of the things that people, you know, they say, oh, it's really lonely at the top. And maybe that's true, but you're always surrounded by people who you can go to and say, what is your view? Tell me your perspective. How are you thinking about it? And that's why having a great team is one of the most important things about doing this job. Mm. Right? It's the single most important thing that a CEO does is build and cultivate that team and that culture. Because ultimately, one person can't run a, a global company that has 15,000 employees in 45 countries. One person can't make all the decisions. That's, right. that's, you know, that would be irrational. It's not possible. What you have to do is build the right team around you. And, and I think that's one thing. The other thing is just a willingness to say, I know that there are values that are important. And we are not going to move from those values. Hmm. So for us, that was always being transparent with our employees, doing what's best for them and best for the company, being willing to say, we'd love to be able to do that, but we can't. And the reason we can't is that people aren't traveling. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there were absolutely decisions that we had to make that, that weren't pleasant. They were hard. We are a much leaner organization. We had to streamline our management structure. And that meant saying goodbye to teammates. I think it's all about doing things that's, that still 
operate within that core set of values. And so, you know, for us, you know, integrity, trust, caring, and making sure that we're always focused on those values being at the center, that's also an important window. If you don't have those, if you don't have them as a North Star, it would be really easy to lose your way, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are two very powerful ways of looking at complex decisions, but also knowing that even when they're unpopular, you know, that they're still the right thing to do. But Mm -hmm. speaking of unpopularity, that is something that the more visible you get in any role, it sort of comes with the territory from somewhere, you know, and um, oftentimes we hear from women, the need to be liked and to belong can be a very dominant need. How have you developed yourself through that to say, as long as you're clear that it's the right thing to do, even if you're disliked or unpopular to stay the course, how does one develop that conviction? You know, this one, this one is harder because I think for me innately, I moved around a tremendous amount um, as a young child. So, you know, I went to first grade one place, second grade, another third and fourth grade, another moved to ultimately kind of what I think of as my hometown, Houston in the fifth grade. But by then, I think I had developed this ability to understand that you know, I wasn't going to have the same people around me. Mm -hmm. And so for me, being respected always felt more important than being liked. Mm. I never saw myself as someone who was going to be the most popular or, you know, the homecoming queen type. I always felt like though, like doing the right thing and being respected felt important to me. And so I would tell you today, Mm-hmm. I'm certain that there are people who don't like me and don't like the decisions that we're making. And that, I think you just have to recognize that's going to come with the territory. Mm-hmm. Again, I, w- I would go back to maybe what I said earlier. If you remember that doing the right thing and trusting in your heart and, you know, leading with a sense of purpose Everyone may not agree with you and everyone may like it, but they will respect what kind of person you are. Mm-hmm. They will respect that you were honest, that you um, were forthright, that you treated people with respect, mm-hmm. uh, that you were kind. And I think those things matter more than being liked. I do think women have a lot of societal pressure of feeling liked. Maybe I was lucky that in our family being you know, achieving goals and and being successful in school and being successful at sports, like I was an athlete, were things that were really rewarded and praised. And therefore, I always felt like it was okay to have goals and objectives to be a team captain and to speak mm-hmm. up. And, and look, I, I have learned through my career for difficult circumstances that you know, there were times where I needed to speak up and maybe I didn't speak up as early as I should have. And, you know, I learned from those and said, I should have spoken up sooner. I should have raised my hand. And I think now I realize that it's absolutely paramount that you stand up for what you believe in. Mm -hmm. And if, if what you believe in and what you're doing at work, if what you're doing at work doesn't, if it conflicts with your core values as a person, 
that to me is a pretty big sign that you should go work somewhere else. Right. And so when I look at opportunities, one of the very first things I look at is who are the people and do they believe in the same things as me? Are they, or would they be my people? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, do they, do they value integrity? Are they people who are going to do the right thing? Are they people who treat other people with respect? To me, that becomes like, that's the entry mm-hmm. to an opportunity. And then you look at, well, do I like what I would do? And do I think I can have an impact and all of that? And I think that has really helped me with that. But, but I never felt tremendous pressure to be liked. I felt a lot of pressure to succeed and do good work and to be respected. And those are the things that I've tried to focus on. What if you could pinpoint the invisible ceilings limiting your success? Imagine having clarity on your strengths and barriers so you can take action and gain unstoppable momentum to advance as a future-ready leader. Well, that's exactly what the Beyond Barriers quiz will help you discover. You'll get your personalized score based on the 25 essential elements proven to accelerate success in the digital age, so you can understand what's holding you back and where to focus your efforts. The Beyond Barriers quiz is completely free and takes just a few minutes. Go to imbeyondbarriers.com slash quiz and take the quiz today. So here's another challenge that a lot of high achievers often face is rapidly changing peer groups. Because if you're rising through at an exponential rate and the peers you had in high school are not, or the ones in college are not, or the ones from your early, you know, first five, 10 years are not, how, what advice would you give um, to folks that are either not intentionally seeking that next level peer group or struggling about maybe standing out too much from that? How have you personally navigated, because you've also moved through a lot of different things, how has that shaped you in terms of an actual peer group that pulls you up? You know, one of the things that I've always felt was great is to find the people in your organization who you really connect with mm-hmm. and to, to think about them as your personal board of advisors, your personal peer group, your hand selected group of people. And so, you know, for me, there are people that I worked with, often other women right? Because you're drawn to women. They have the same circumstances. You, they also have children, you know, they're trying to manage a two career household, whatever their circumstance might be, but they weren't necessarily my immediate peer. So I'm a member of a finance leadership team. Maybe I report to the CFO, but one of my close peers that I really would go to for advice might be a female leader in HR or a woman who worked in strategy or maybe a male colleague who worked in marketing. And I think it's finding people that you really can connect with and creating your own peer group. I've always tried to do that. That's always mattered to me. So when I would go to a new company, I always wanted to cultivate those relationships. When you met someone from another part of the organization to say, hey, I'd love to have lunch with you. I'd love to get to know you better. And by doing that, you also build this network within an organization. Um, when I worked at ServiceMaster as the chief financial officer of True Green, which is a 
a, a lawn care company that's a brand that people might have heard of, right? It's pretty, pretty big in the United States. I used to always try to go and have lunch with different people throughout the company. And my boss, who was the president of that group, would say, you're always having lunch with people, you know, you're always so social. And I would be like, but, but it's great to get to know these people. But then when we had a problem, we might have a problem with procurement or we might have a problem with IT. I also had these colleagues and I would call them and say, I have this problem. I need your help. I need your advice. What should I do? And it, and I don't mean that in a Machiavellian way. I wasn't creating relationships for the point of using mm-hmm. them. But it, what I learned is that connectedness helped me because it yeah. helped me be more effective. Right. It helped me be able to say, you know what? I know someone in procurement. I'm going to call them and talk to them. They're going to give me insight. Mm. And to be able to come back and say, you know what? They had some really good things to say. Here's some suggestions that I think we could do. So I think, you know, your peer group isn't something that you have to feel is imposed on you. Now, mm. that said, peer relationships will make or break your career. They are the single most important factor in how you're going to elevate yourself. The way you're going to get elevated is by your peers having confidence and trust in you. So you do have to work at having good relationships and some come easy and some you have to put your back into working at. But I think also having that extended peer group of people that you, you know, your personal board of advisors, who would you call if you had a career decision to make? And who, not just that, but who would call you if they had a career to decision to make? Those are the people that I think are really important. And, you know, I think having those people and, and I have those people and I don't, I don't work with any of them right now. They're all people that I worked with somewhere else. And if I was faced with a decision that was big, those are the people that I would consult with. Right. So uh, the cultivation of relationships that help you create more value really uh, in the world is powerful, is important. But what about, um, you know, there's only so much time. Um, So how do you allocate the time or invest the time in perhaps past relationships that you might have outgrown? Or do you? You know, and I um, ask this question specifically because it comes up a lot from, you know, uh, folks in our community about, you know, everyone around me is still people from the past 20 years, not the people that I need to focus on today. You know, I think for me, um, moving beyond relationships that maybe don't benefit you, mm-hmm. that was probably not as hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe again, I'll relate that to 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 being a young girl and moving around the world and having to always form new friendships, yeah. always being new and, and kind of having to immerse yourself in a new culture. But there are people that you want to hold on to. And I have people that I worked with 20 years ago, um, some of whom work with me now, you know, who I want to bring with me. Um, I do have people who work on the finance team that are people that worked with me at three other companies those are important, but there are all piece of people I worked with 20 years ago that I don't talk to mm-hmm. and they're not the same people. And, you know, if you, if you stay in one place, you will become, you, you do risk, I think, becoming complacent mm-hmm. and not growing and developing new relationships and meeting new people. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it is something to the old adage that you got to keep the the best friends you've got and keep them close. But people who don't invest in you or 
you know, maybe only want to invest in you because they think you can connect them to someone. They just have never been my people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I always tell people network with people, but network to find the people that you find a connection with mm-hmm. and keep those connections. There are people that I have worked with 25 years ago that I've run into again and I felt connected to them then and I feel connected to them now. Right. Um, you know, in fact, almost 25 years later, somebody I worked with in my very first job at American Airlines was somebody who I stumbled into because of where my children went to school when we moved back to Dallas. And it, it was somebody I had felt connected to at the time that hadn't stayed in touch with, but that connection comes back really quickly. So I think being willing to, you know, reconnect with people, but I also think there is only so much time and, you know, the people that really care about you, Mm -hmm. people that are invested in you, they're not people you have to talk to every day. Right. They are people that you could go a month without talking to, and it should feel like yesterday. And you do need those people. And those are the relationships I think people should invest in. Absolutely. So uh, your career has also revealed this tremendous amount of adaptability and um, really sort of um, innovating through different chapters. And you've done that even in your current role. Uh, You've disrupted a lot of the traditional approaches and you're bringing in a new vision and new way of doing things. What are some of the biggest trends when you look into the future that you're excited about and believe they're the biggest opportunities? Well, you know, to me, one of the biggest things is how every business is becoming a technology business. Right. Right. You used to say, well, there are technology businesses and then there are, you know, other businesses. But now, I think every business is a technology business and the pace and the advancement of kind of the scientific community, the, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence and, you know, using new technologies to further your business. To me, that's one thing that makes me super excited. And maybe it's because secretly I'm just a big tech geek at heart, (laughs) but, you know, all the ways you can use technology, whether it's automating customer service with chatbots or, you know, figuring out how to use machine learning to drive new algorithms so that your employees can be more productive. To me, I think that trend is only going to get bigger and bigger. If you look back 25 years ago, technology was beginning to cause disruption and beginning to change the way we work. Mm -hmm. That has only accelerated I don't see a future where that doesn't continue. So that's exciting to me. And it's exciting to me about all the ways you can use it to make life better for mm-hmm. your employees, right? The fact that we can have face-to-face meetings with somebody 13 time zones away, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty awesome. Nothing beats face-to-face in person. Right. That human interaction, the hug, the dinner, the casual conversation, nothing beats that. But The way technology has helped us expand, I think that the other thing to me in the other trend is where we're really beginning as as humankind Mm -hmm. to think about how to value the many diverse spaces of the workforce around the world, Mm -hmm. learning to value people with such radically different 
experiences, lifestyles, languages, and choices. To me, that is another trend that I want to see continued. That that growth curve that we're on around fairness and and equity and inclusion and making corporate America available to everybody, right? Mm -hmm. You used to feel like it was definitely sort of the country club for the white male. And now I feel like it is, we've democratized it in a way where it is a place where everyone can be successful. Doesn't matter your, your gender, your sex, your sexual preference, your, your heritage, your ethnicity, your, your whatever, your religious choice. Like, I feel like now there's so much more talent to be used in growing a business. Like those two things coupled together really resonate for me. Like, I feel like the world will be built by this people plus technology power that we put into businesses. And in fact, we use that saying a lot in our own business, that our business is about people plus technology. Right. And the ability to solve humanity's greatest challenges through that. It's failed to be able to do that. But it also requires every person to be responsible for their own learning and growth. Because when the world is changing that fast you can no longer rely on just the graduate degree you got 10 years ago or your employer's learning and development. How do you feed your mind? How do you stay ahead of the curve in terms of constant learning, especially with all the demands on your time and the responsibilities you already have? Well, I will tell you, I am, um, you know, I talked about being intellectually curious, but I I probably have this habit that I think really helps, which is I start my day kind of feeding my mind. So, you know, when I wake up, the first thing I do before I really read and respond to emails, before I kind of let it pull me in is I read the news and I probably read 20 to 25 different news sources or articles every day. And I might, I might get interested in something and be reading about it or, I might look at what's happening in certain industries. Um, For a while during the pandemic, I was this voracious consumer of data on the pandemic. And I had all these sources I would go to and what's happening and what would I read and who would I follow? And so, you know, and and it's more about what interests me than it is what necessarily is important to my business. I would say there's always something about my business in there, but it could be sports. Right now, it's, it, you know, last week it was college baseball. I'm a big college sports fan and the college uh, baseball uh, playoffs are going on right now. And so I wanted to read what happened in the game. So I probably do that. And then I will say that I fairly um, rigorously spend 30 to 45 minutes watching the financial news in the morning. CNBC is my favorite. Not afraid to say that. Um, I, I I have it on while I'm getting ready for my day. I want to hear what's happening in the markets. What is what's happening with the Fed? What's happening, um, you know, with the ECB, the European Central Bank? And so that is. And then and then I think that sort of to me because I do that first. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm armed with kind of understanding what's happening in the world. What context am I going off to my day in? Um, and then I kind of do it again at night, like reading again at night. So for me, it's reading and consuming what's happening and, and following things that are interesting to me. And if I get a good book, I'll read a good book, uh, too, but it doesn't always have to be a book. It could be a series of articles. It could be watching a documentary sometimes. Right. That's fantastic. So, uh, imagine there's a big billboard 
somewhere in Times Square and it has a message from you to the world, what would it say? Gosh, one message on a billboard from me to the world. Um, Especially to women everywhere. Yeah. You know, I think I would tell people, number one, trust yourself. You know, don't be afraid to go for what you your goals. But always remember that how we treat people matters. I'm a big I'm a big proponent of that. You can choose any you can choose to be anything you want in the world. If you can choose only one thing, choose to be kind. That was beautiful. And I would want people to hear that, to know that achieving does not have to mean that you're a ruthless cutthroat. That you can be a great human being and a great leader. Mm. That is beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing a story. This has been an amazing interview. And uh, I'm so excited for our listeners to learn from you. And thank you for everything you do. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there. And we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and tell a friend about it and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes, links, and the best way to connect with our guests. See you next episode.